Yeah, as you could tell from that introduction, uh, mainly I, I uh, publish on my research with several uh, collaborators uh, on the HUDs of Tanzania. You know, duty bound to get as many data from them as possible before the days of hunting and gathering come to an end. Uh, so far, we still are able to work with Hadza that that get less than 10%, usually maybe 5% uh, of non-foraged foods. And even those is not because they're uh, growing crops or anything. It's just trade, you know, trading honey with the neighboring agro-pastoralists or whatever. But uh, the other thing I, I have been doing, uh, I guess it was not totally deliberate uh, strategy, uh, sort of just started happening and then I realized, well, eventually maybe I'll write a book on hunter-gatherers. And if I did that, I would have different important topics being covered in each chapter. And um, so that's resulted in me conducting a number of these cross-cultural um, some cross-cultural research using the standard cross-cultural sample, usually, which uh, is what is being used in, in this talk. So um, one of the reasons for that is it, sometimes I'm talking to people and I cite, I cite Hadza data to support something, you know, whatever, and they very rightly say, yeah, that's one, you know, it's just one society. So I like to have a handle on how widely distributed certain traits are in hunter-gatherers. Uh, I'm assuming that this, this bit uh, about humans in general, when it says especially foragers, you're thinking, well, it must, must be implying that it, it uh, pertains to non-foragers, people in societies like this, or people in pastoralist societies or what have you. Uh, okay, maybe a little bit. Uh, we'll, I mean, towards the end, we'll come back to that issue. And what it is that I'm really trying to get at in this talk, that I don't, I don't restrict it to just hunter-gatherers. Um, okay, so... Um, hopefully this will help right off the bat, you know. So suppose you want to do your study on human stratification or egalitarian, you know, is there some egalitarianism in the midst of the, 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 the range across different kinds of human societies? Uh, and whichever kind of society you go to, this should apply. You know, you might have to wait a long time in your research to capture, to, to score these events, which is what normally we're leading, we're reading when, uh, when we hear uh, dominance hierarchies being talked about, social stratification in other species. You know, it, uh, it's quite noticeable. We don't have to be experts to interpret what the message is coming from this male Savannah baboon. Uh, okay, well, one thing I see is that uh, we don't have the uh, entrance. That's okay. It doesn't matter. So you can read ahead if you want. Um, but these are different measures of dominance that primatologists use and um, don't have all that much trouble using them because you, you, you're watching it, 
You can score it. You get a lot of overlap between researchers scoring these things, as they do. Uh, and, you know, they make sense straight, straight away. Maybe the grooming is not as clear what to expect with that. Um, because, uh, as you'll see in a later slide, it's not necessarily the more dominant individual that is, is doing the grooming, at least from the beginning, or is getting groomed, I mean, from the beginning. Uh, winning contests for food, obviously, that's a good measure. Uh, how long are you going to have to wait to find that happening uh, in your human sample? Um, okay, there are contests for mates, but, uh, you know, how, how often does it resort to a fight? Um, okay. How to measure these sorts of things in humans? I mean, it's worthwhile for someone to try, just if, if for no other reason than to actually illustrate how difficult it would be to, to determine um, a rank like in other species. Okay, so um, here's Amos Felt's uh, book, and he, I think you get the point that he was trying to make from these images here. Uh, you got chimpanzees, and then you have these various different kinds of human societies, uh, in which case there's always this supplication. Uh, and the interesting thing is, you know, the, the thing he's saying that, that this grew out of is uh, the chimpanzee behavior of the uh, female bowing and to inv invite the uh, dominant male to, to groom her. You know, maybe um, he, he grooms her very briefly and now she figures it's safe to approach him and then he lays down and lets her groom him for longer or something. But uh, for anyone like myself, who's, who's spent time with the Hadza in a, in a Hadza camp, uh, you know, you would never see anything like this. You just would never see anything like this. Um, there's no formalized subordinate gestures. And they're very clear about, you know, uh, if someone shows up and says, who's the head man in this camp? Um, you know, they're very clear, it's very clear in their mind, there is not a head man in the camp. Uh, that's not to say that uh, if, uh, you know, a real-life example, if some uh, tour operator who wants to take tourists to see the Hadza, uh, if he sees some guy off uh, in, in a camp, in a Hadza camp, and there aren't a lot of people around, perhaps, or even if there are a few around, and, and, and he says, are you the head man, you know, and this guy may say, yeah, yeah, because he wants to get the, the goodies. There's going to have to be some, some gifts that you got. And, you know, he regrets it in, you know, in a couple of weeks' time or something. He regrets it, and he's, he's learned his lesson because he takes hell from everybody else that he's really being, you know, he's not giving everybody an equal share. So, um, so you know, the, the, what does this mean? It, it either means there's uh, just two sorts of, Examples that are not connected by any anything like shared genes that are at all related to this, perhaps. Uh, that's what you would think if you if you spent time around simple foragers that are that are famous for being egalitarian. Okay, so the data that uh, I used for this talk come from that standard cross-cultural sample, and maybe many of you are familiar with it, but perhaps not. Uh, 
it's, uh, it's data that was culled out of the Ethnographic Atlas, which has 1,267 societies, basically all that uh, Peter Murdoch could, could find good uh, uh, ethnographies on. And those are valuable, but they're, they're out of that, you know, it's about almost, uh, it's almost three-quarters of those societies are in North America. And I think we could, most of us could guess why that was, that, you know, they're, it's all traditional society. Closest thing to a modern, big, urban, industrialized society is China in the 1930s. Um, but, so it's all these um, simple societies. And, uh, and then you can break them into these four modes of subsistence, foragers, pastoralists, horticulturalists, and agriculturalists. And, uh, and then you can define what you're going to use. And so I, I chose that they need to have 90% or more of their diet not coming from any kind of cultivation or pastoralism or any such thing. So it's, they're getting 90-plus percent of their diet from wild foods. Uh, and there are 36 societies in the sample like that. So here's what stratification by mode of subsistence looks like. I mean, so far I haven't said anything that's at all controversial. Obviously, most of you would already say, well, yeah, uh, hunter-gatherers, foragers are famous. By the way, I'm just using that term interchangeably. So I'll, talk, I'll call the other ones horticulturalists if they do a, a fair bit of foraging, but they also grow some, do some uh, slash and burn kind of uh, agriculture. So it's, it's well known that foragers are, uh, are very egalitarian compared to the others. And I'm just showing you that, that, that these data support that. But the other thing, for those of you who uh, are into the details, um, Notice that uh, the, the definition here, you're in the category of egalitarian or wealth distinctions slash slavery or complex, complex sort of stratification or classes, maybe it's simpler. So perhaps the um, caste, caste would be in here. Um, the one thing I did, there, was, there were four categories and, and these two weren't together, but it seemed to me like they really did overlap quite a bit uh, because you might, you know, you might be surprised. Uh, should be surprising to a lot of people that there were some societies that had slaves but were technically foragers. So, uh, in other words, it, it didn't make sense to have the, the middle one. It was not clear what to do with that, but certainly it was high. It was more stratification than that, and this even more than that. So that's the way that these are used. And I'm just showing the stat that says these differences are significant. It's not telling you which two matched up, but uh, I think in, in all matchups, you know, forgers uh, are significantly more egalitarian than the others. Uh, okay. When did forger egalitarianism begin? Um, if you, if you um, think about um, our closest relatives phylogenetically and you want to um, try to understand what was the likely ancestor of both humans 
and chimpanzees and bonobos, so I'll just call that the last common ancestor. If we're imagining from all sorts of data, whether it's archaeological data or it's uh, genetic data or it's uh, um, behavioral ecology data, um, then you know it would seem that it, it would be parsimonious, perhaps, to to think that there was some dominance hierarchy to some extent, but not necessarily. Uh, I mean, both champs and bonobos certainly do have uh, the... Everyone's well aware that champs do, but bonobos do as well. There's a, there's a female dominance hierarchy that's very noticeable as well as male. Um, so anyway, the point is, uh, we, it seems likely that there might be this U-shaped pattern, that there used to be more stratification in, in our ancestor. And it came down to this very low e uh, level of egalitarianism, and it only started going back up when you get agriculture. So that's the way that I'm imagining this happening. Uh, okay, so the question, why are foragers so egalitarian? And we'll find out that they're not all. So in a way, that's good, because it helps explain why so many of them are so egalitarian. Uh, and James Woodburn that I was talking about, the uh, social anthropologist who studied the Hadza uh, since 1958, he's, he's been using this term for a good while now, immediate return, and so he tries to uh, address what the egalitarianism is about, looking at immediate return. So one idea about immediate return is you just wake up and you just go out and you get your food and you're very likely to get enough. You go to sleep. You all you don't have any food left over maybe when you go to sleep. Because you can just do that every day, all year round. Um, you don't have to store up uh, for some long period of time where you might not get any food. And so the opposite from that, delayed return uh, societies are quite different. Delayed return societies do start having a lot of traits that are shared with some kind of agriculture, horticulture, uh, bachelorism, or intensive agriculture. Okay, so um, another, that's one, that's one idea, the immediate return. Another is the mobile nature of hunter-gatherers. They're moving around all the time. Uh, don't stay in one place. One thing about that is uh, they end up with these very large home range, the amount of area that, that an individual would cover over the course of a year, home range, is a huge area because of this moving around. You know, each move, in the case of the Hadza, each move is about 12 kilometers away from, it's an average of 12 kilometers away from where they were. Uh, okay. Multilocality. Um, I think somebody else used that term. I'm not sure whether it was uh, the embers. Uh, might have been. Anyway, I like this term because in the terms that are regularly used for residence patterns, uh, a lot of times it gets, it gets uh, disseminated until it's patrilocal or matrilocal. Some have argued, you know, much better to call it virilocal than sorolocal. Uh, and basically, you know, it's, it's, it's always thought of as who lives with 
which one's parents. Does the husband live with his parents, or does he live with her parents, his wife's parents? Uh, when in fact, often it is the older ones saying, which one of my kids do I want to live with now? That's very often what's going on. And, uh, and the classifications you know, will usually be for one or the other much more than it probably should be. But fortunately, in this data set, they had, uh, and, and what we always used to hear was just a, a variable for residents. Was it with the wives, was it with, with the husbands, or was it neo-local, it was with them alone, they didn't, they didn't live with the parents on either side. Um, the thing is that um, it could be a number of those. And what usually was reported was a variable that really is what happens after the early years. The early years not being specified usually. You know, what's that, two years or is that eight years? But the fact is, you have uh, bride, bride wealth is common in a lot of societies. And in foragers, which don't have that kind of wealth, uh, it's, it's just it's bride service. It's doing a lot of food getting, hopefully impressing the in-laws, etc. But So what I did is I looked at residence patterns considering both the early years and the later years. Uh, one thing that often happens is, people will state something like it's the way things should be, and then the reality is quite different. And so those later years don't really come for a good while because maybe the wife likes living with, with her, her kin. Anyway, so uh, that's one of the variables in here. Multilocal, it's with his or with her, or with both, or with neither. It's just very fluid, okay? And then central place provisioning. Some of you may be familiar with the term central place foraging, which is in the literature. This is just a term that I want to get in the literature. I haven't succeeded yet, but I haven't given up either. Uh, which is, you know, central, you can be a central place forager if you go out and get food. Hamadryas baboons and gelato baboons are both good examples of this. They, they wake up, they sleep together at one place, they wake up and they go out, break down in smaller groups, and they eat, eat. And then when they're through eating, it's time to go back, it's getting late. They go right back to the same place to sleep together. So that's central place foraging. But one crucial difference between that and what happens with human foragers, they don't take anything back. And it's when you take things back to a camp where some have been there maybe the whole day, or some are real little and didn't, they, you know, the older ones don't want them to go. Whatever the, the few reasons of that is a dynamic that's very important in terms of food sharing. Uh, so, so the point here is that uh, you have central place provisioning that may um, uh, facilitate this uh, tolerate scrounging and also create these fluid coalitions. And what I mean by that, so tolerate scrounging is the sharing is, hey, you know, uh, you didn't give me enough, give me some more is tolerate scrounging. It's not, it's not stealing, it's just making sure that you get a better share than maybe someone stingy is trying to give you. Uh, fluid coalitions, what I mean by that is instead of the kinds of coalitions you tend to see in chimpanzees, so you know the ranks and you know that these three are part of that 
you know, coalition. And then these sometimes work together. And No, it's just everybody who's wanting to get some of this meat of some big animal, like a giraffe or, or an impala, uh, they are wanting to get some. And they're expecting to get some. And not giving them some is probably not such a good idea when you have a whole lot. So that's the distinction between central place foraging and central place provisioning. If you're taking food back, there's probably going to be this whole dynamic with the food sharing. Okay. So now uh, the, the, the point is to see if I can substantiate these things as I go through and see if uh, more egalitarianism seems to be related to having more of these things be true. So here is the uh, stratification on the y-axis here. And on the x, we've got none, uh, none in terms of food storage. Or up from that, you just have individual households try to save, save up a little bit. And then you get these facilities, and then you get an agent involved, you got, then you got what we're used to. So, um, so you can see that there is this relationship between storage, food storage and stratification. Again, the stat, stat's just telling you that you know, it's significantly different, at least across one and one of the others of those. <laughs> you let you... Can you just read out the bottom lines? Oh, right here? Yeah. Uh, or this? No, no, sorry. Okay, that says none. This is not, there's no uh, storage, food storage. And then this is, there's a little storage by individual households just on their own, you know, not organized. Now it's community. Now, so I mean, one of the things you have going on is all this group cooperation that has, has to happen in storing societies, which of course are mostly a agricultural of some kind. I'll just use that to cover the three non-foraging categories. So you start seeing that sort of thing, and then that just keeps getting more and more centralized and, and sophisticated and complicated and so forth. And so, you know, this, these, this would be, this probably would be China in the 30s in that data set, or Rome's in there from, you know, the height of the, the Roman Empire. Um, okay, so that, I hope that the point is clear that you actually see a relationship with this food storage variable and stratification, social stratification, such that it's consistent with, you know, what we think about for the, the immediate return I was talking about, Woodburn's immediate return foragers as opposed to delayed. The delayed return foragers do some storage, but the immediate return do not. Okay, this is a variable, the, the, the social stratification is that variable um, that um, that I showed you before, um, which is the three kinds of categories. Um, there were there were the complex, um, and there were the n n no stratification, and then there was that one in between that where the slavery went in with a bit of, of uh, other stratification. So in other words, it's, it's where uh, on that scale up to three uh, would you fall if you're, if you're up higher, then there is more stratification, and, and then down here there's less stratification. So uh, 
this is this is showing you that it's not that all 36 forgers have not, no stratification, because then they would presumably be right down here all at this number one. So there's a little bit of stratification. These are still all, the, everything I'm showing you is the thir same 36 foraging societies that are giving, getting privileged. And then there are something like 22 pastoralists, 50-something horticulturalists, and 50-something intensive agriculturists. So again, the, 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 the same thing here, except now you see how they're broken into the, the modes. And so what you see is there's a big jump when you get to the intensive agriculturalists here with food storage. But as you can see, pastoralists do more of it than foragers and horticulturalists do more than pastoralists even. All right, now this is showing the variable of sedentism, which means uh, the, higher you, uh, the higher you are on this axis here, on the y-axis, uh, the more sedentary you are. The lower down here, the more mobile. So the, the, uh, ex the, the two extremes are really mobile and really sedentary. And so you can see that foragers are pretty mobile, but notice they're not the most mobile. Pastoralists are even more mobile than, than foragers, moving really long distances, moving their herds around. Uh, so one might say, you know, it's all about the mobility, and in there, it's, that's not good enough, because you wouldn't have explained why clearly pastoralists are more stratified than, than foragers. But you can see how the horticulturalists and the agriculturalists, they are just much more sedentary. I mean, you know, these guys, we, we tend to, it's not quite all the way up there, but we tend to think, uh, you know, well, I mean, if you go back to some medieval period, that's when people probably didn't move. They just stayed somewhere in their, their whole life. But now we're, we have all this mobility. There's all sorts of, by the way, this is, this is maybe getting a little too, uh, extra, you know, far from the heart of things. But there are all these interesting traits about industrialized, uh, liberal, um, rich societies that start sharing a lot of traits with who? The foragers, the simple foragers. And, and after having, you know, a history of going through, going through a different period, and that happens to be one of them, you know, we're a very mobile society, moving after a few, you know. Foragers moving after a few weeks, usually, and in our case, at least, it's after a few years. Uh, stratification by mobility. Um, so if... If you're, uh, the way, the, keep in mind, the way this goes is the higher up you are over here, the more sedentary you are. So that's why it's good to, you know, this is high in being sedentary. You're just not moving much. It's in between, and here's mobile. Uh, when, you, when you look at that, you see this clear relationship with more stratification with more sedentism. And that one works actually, you know, outside of just those four modes. So uh, it looks like mobility has a role to play in why foragers are so, so egalitarian. Okay, um, 
can tell that with the color, it looks different. I just inserted, inserted a few slides in here on the bus because I realized uh, that I just sort of lumped two things together. So I wanted to sort out the mobility by itself, regardless of what kind of residential pattern, the marital residence there is, whether they're staying with wife's kin or his kin or neither or both, whatever. Uh, I hadn't shown what I was already thinking, because this is an earlier one of these papers that I did just on marital residence. So I, I decided I better put that in there and explain how often, I mean, too often I used to hear claims about forger marital residence patterns were really not any different than horticulturalists and, and other modes of societies, but I knew that wasn't the case, and uh, that's why I had to do this paper where this is still using the same 36 foragers, 186 societies. And in the red are all the three modes that are not foragers. And over here, you're very local, so tend to be living with husband's kin. Uh, and over here, Uxora local, tend to be living with uh, wife's kin. And you can see how in the non-foraging societies, 60% are very local, 15% are local, 25% multi-local, and, and I, I calculated that. I, in, I used those two variables early years and later years. So if those two things were different, then that meant multi-local as opposed to just one or the other. Hope, hope that's not too complicated. I can explain it in more detail if anybody wants later. So anyway, you can see multi-local in foragers is the most common. But furthermore, uh, here's what the early years looks like. So you can see foragers have a whole lot of this Uxora local residence early on. And a lot of times what you had is, you know, some ethnographer asking a whole lot of questions. The good ones, of course, were seeing things for over a long period of time. So then they could see how much they decided that things matched up, what you hear and what you see. So, I mean, I think... You know, there's probably a tendency to hear men doing a lot of the talking to the ethnographers and saying, oh yeah, no, they have to, you know, our wives have to live with us and they're my kin, you know. They might be saying that because they, they want it to be that way more than it really is. You can see that it's, it's dominated by this doing some bride service to convince your in-laws that you're worthy of their daughter. Uh, anyway, so when you, uh, when you take that into account... Now, this is, you know, you have two patterns, so I'm going to call it multi-local, Uxor local, very local. Still more very local than Uxor local, but now multi-local uh, dominates if you're looking at just the foragers. Um, and if you're just looking at the warm climate foragers, which I just decided to define, and I use this in all these articles, the effective temperature which is a measure to, to calculate the mean coldest and mean warmest, and then, and then to take that into account when you, when you decide how cold or warm uh, it is on average across these, uh, across these latitudes. Uh, so why did I do that? Why do I want a, a warm climate and, um, versus a cold climate sample of foragers? Because... I'm most interested in the foragers as some windows 
as best we can, we can gather some windows into the past, possibly of what it's like when you're not, when you don't have any kind of agriculture. Um, and I'm sorry, the Arctic folk got there in the Arctic much later than what I'm talking about, and have these real special toolkits, all sorts of special things about it. So they're really not that useful letting them, and there's a lot of them in there because there were quite a few still there to be seen by the ethnographers since nobody but foragers was living in the Arctic, you know. I mean, what pastoralists? Okay, maybe a few pastoralists on the edge of it. But uh, no horticulturists, obviously, in, in the Arctic or intensive agriculture. So anyway, now if you look at the warm climate foragers, uh, multi-local is, you know, dominating here. And then... Uh, the strict residence is just a, a further categorization of they have early and later years being one thing. Uh, and uh, so you might say, how could they be strictly multilocal? Because there was more than one anyway. And so now here you're adding the early years and the later years. So the point is, I'm going with warm climate foragers. Multilocality is the way to think about their residence pattern. It certainly is not um, patrilocality, patrilocal. Okay, and why do I need to get into that? Because stratification varies with subsistence mode because mode cor correlates with food surplus and storage, we saw, with mobility, sedentism, and with this marital residence pattern. And the thing, the, really the thing, I'm, I'm less interested in virilocal versus luxorilocal, male, female. I'm, I'm much less interested in that than I am in just, it's multilocal. It's varied. Uh, because that's very common in the, in the simple foragers. And what it means is, uh, on another slide, I guess, um, you've probably, many of you have probably heard voting with your feet. So uh, after Richard Lee and the Kung became so well known in the 60s, the early 70s, uh, you know, it was a very quick and easy way to answer. So maybe some students asked, "Well, why are they so egalitarian? If you know, if they really are, I hear you saying they're egalitarian." And the answer would be, "Because they can vote with their feet. Someone tries to boss them around, they can just move into another camp. That's not a problem. There's no problem." Consequently, no one can get away with bossing you around when you don't want to. Uh, and so, multilocality helps with that because, you know, if, if you were going to be just very local your whole life, once you get married, that's it, she, you know. And so you can move and, and, and try to talk your way into some other camp that's related to your, your dad's, your dad's kin, but not only, but it so happens that the simple foragers, they're not limited like that. It can be on dads, on moms. So right then, you just, you double the number of places you can go. I mean, it's not like you have to have some kin where you're moving in. But, uh, and I see Hadza moving in where they may not have any kin because they're, they're fine with fictive kin. They'll just make up some kin relationship. But it is interesting, it tells you something that when you say, I say, what are you doing over here? I've never seen you in this camp over in this area. You know, usually I see you over there, over there. And he says, yeah, well, you know, that's my, that's my good cousin's uh, daughter over there. You know, just whatever excuse 
in terms of some kind of kin relationship is what comes out of their mouth first. So it's not us uh, making them think along those lines. Okay, so the, what are the causes of forgery egalitarianism? We just saw those, those were the ones that I thought would be. Uh, do the same factors explain variation within forgers? So now, no longer are we looking at anything but 36 forging societies. So now it's just within the foragers. And you see that um, where there's more food surplus and storage, which is over here, there's more stratification. And where there's less of that over here, none or barely, there's more egalitarianism. So those things are related. Just within foragers, the same way they are when you're looking across all four modes of subsistence. Uh, okay, and what about the mobility factor? Uh, remember, this is now just 36 foragers. Those foragers that are more sedentary, um, that they are in relation to food surplus. So they have higher food surplus the more sedentary they are. And the more mobile they are, less food surplus. And the more sedentary they are, the more stratified they are, if they're sedentary. The more mobile they are, the less stratified. So this mobility clearly is something that is explaining why foragers are so egalitarian. So uh, the thing to think about is if we compare us to chimpanzees, compare human foragers to chimpanzees, uh, you, you have very difficult periods of, of immigration uh, in chimpanzees. Males really just need to stay put if they if they are, get run out of uh, where they are living and they need to get into another chimpanzee group's territory, they're likely to get attacked and maybe killed. Even for females, it's not that easy, which you might wonder. You might think, well, the resident, the females in one, in one uh, uh, group are not happy to see any competing females come in, but, but uh, uh, certainly it's dangerous for males. But what you see in human foragers is all this fluidity through different locations where, so imagine these are three camps. They're going off and visiting people over in that other group or just moving into that other group and marrying someone from that other group. Their core group is, doesn't have any permanence at all. There's, there's no such thing as a core group. Okay, maybe with uh, their parents as they're growing up, they're staying with their parents most all of the time. But beyond that, there's just all this fluidity in in human forgers that really is a distinguishing trait. It's rare to see that sort of organization in other species. Uh, okay, stratification by food storage. Um, none, not stratified, individual households. Now we don't have those, other, those more complex ways of storing, but we got individual households. And sure enough, you still see that this food storage is related to, uh, you know, maybe via sedentism, but uh, 
also something about the habitat. And, um, and then you get more uh, stratification. Okay. Um, stratification by forager type. So now I'm breaking down the foragers into hunter gatherers and fishers. That's okay if they're fishing, that's all right. But if they're the kinds of fishing societies that are the anadromous fish, like salmon, that run up river to spawn and do that in such gigantic numbers, that that's what, that's what created those complex foragers in northwest North America from British Columbia down through, even a bit of Alaska down through Oregon, let's say. Um, it was that they, and they didn't take it up real early, it looks like it was only about 5,000 years ago, that they, they started building weirs on the rivers and they could catch so many salmon, smoke it in this big smokehouse, and basically have almost enough, at least enough of that sort of food for a, a year sometimes. Um, and all sorts of traits emerged along with that. Hence the slavery, the, 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 the foragers that have slaves are these guys, they had continuous warfare, they were totally sedentary, clear, big men, all sorts of things. They changed from, uh, so that's the delayed return foragers that Woodburn was talking about. Anyway, so you can see that they stick out like a sore thumb here. Um, simple hunter-gatherers are more egalitarian than the, the anadromous fishers, and uh, they're less sedentary than fisher foragers. So even if you exclude them and just have these guys, uh, I think there's a slide that shows that, so I'll just move on. Um, well, here it is. The, 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 more, um, the more that the diet has fishing in it, here rather than there, the more stratified. And you know, you might wonder, well, what exactly explains that? Because of the relationship there, but how can we figure out what it is? Um, it, it also goes along with they're less mobile. Often there tends to be enough, the sources of where they're fishing are rich enough that they don't really have to move very much like the typical foragers are moving. Um, I mean, fish are a very good source of food, so it's, if, you've got, if you've got them, then you can use them and, and start creating a more dense population. Here is what the relationship between hunting is and egalitarianism. When there's no contribution to the diet from hunting over here, or 10%, 20 and all the way over to here, you see that the amount of stratification comes way down. So those societies that have a lot of hunting in them are more egalitarian. And keep in mind, this is just with 3640. Don't let me forget to, to answer why that might be if, I, if, if it's not in here, because I can't remember if it is. Uh, why are hunter-gatherers so egalitarian compared to other species? Um, this moving camp business, there's, so there's two kinds of mobility. There's, you know, let's imagine everyone in this group of 30 people just up and moves 12 kilometers away. Okay, that's one kind of mobility, but at the same time, while they're sitting in one place for a month, 
there may be people, a family or two moving out, somebody else moving in, so there's fluidity that way. So there's the mobility of just deciding to leave this camp versus the mobility of your camp members are all ready to leave and you're going to go move with them. But the point is, it makes for a large home range, moving around to where you can know that there are going to be a lot of ripe berries over here. Uh, here, you got to be around water, and a lot of the water holes dry up, so you move there. Over here to get honey at the right time. So foods require a large home range and residential moves. Uh, so the area is non-defendable. So you don't really see the kind of territorial exclusion that you would see in many other species. It's just really not defendable. Um, the median group size of a camp, I like to call them camps rather than they've been called other things like bands or uh, I like to just refer to them as a camp because camps sound like they're not permanent. You got a camp, you're going to move. So it's a, it's a very, it feels like a camp. Um, so they're, uh, you know, they're finding mates from other groups when they're interacting. They're always visiting around. I mean, yeah, you could marry someone in your group because she might, he or she might not be closely related to you, but uh, a lot of them might be closely related to you. Um, bilateral kin affords movement to where the best opportunities. I think I've already hammered that enough. I've made that point why uh, I like to think of them as multi-local. Freedom of movement means foragers can vote with their feet if someone gets bossy. That idea has been around. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely part of the story. Uh, okay, so why are they central place provisioners? Uh, one thing is, you know, the gelato baboons and hamadryas baboons sleep in these huge groups. You know, could be well over 100, 200. Um, and they're all sleeping together at night in the same place, up on these cliffs. Presumably, uh, at least in the past, they would have quite a serious problem with uh, leopards. Uh, maybe some other animals as well. But um, So, if you sleep in a large enough group, maybe you're safe from some big dangerous animals. Um, and something that I see all the time going on with the Hadza is, these toddlers, that's the ones you've, you've already weaned, you just weaned. They're a burden. Now you already got the next kid, and now you're nursing this kid. And you just take that one, that little one, just rides on mom's back and goes foraging with her. But those, they don't like to take them because they can't keep up. And, uh, and so they want to leave them in camp, which means you have to have a few others, people looking after them. So there's some people that stay in camp, but others go out. Uh, so... The central place foraging is to solve these problems, but you get, as a consequence, the likelihood of scrounging. Well, scrounging. So this, uh, this picture I like to try to use to sum up what happens. She takes that one out foraging with her, and she did, and she went and got those berries. But she, and she ate until she was full out when she's getting the berries. Uh, and then she takes those back for her little son that was left in camp there. Uh, and then, you know, you got when something big, impala-sized animal comes in, it's going to be shared with all households in the average size camp of the Hobbs anyway. And uh, everybody gets excited and there's, you know, all 
helping to get that meat cut up and, uh, and divided up. And arguments are, if, if you hear arguments starting, it's usually someone thinking their, their share was not big enough. Okay, so, in conclusion, why human egalitarianism? You have this dichotomy immediate return uh, versus delayed return, and really, the, you know, we can't think of any category of societies outside of foragers that would be immediate return. I mean, just by definition, if you're not a forager, <laughs> you're probably not immediate return. Um, Mobility, um, the foraging diet, mapping on the foods and where they are at different times of the year and where the water is at different times of the year. That, that's what explains why they're mobile. This multi-locality, I'd say, helps more than that even with voting with your feet because, you know, when in this case, it's like regardless of, of which, which sort of kin you have in this camp or other camps, you at least double your chances with this over having um, some kind of unilocal residence pattern. And then central place provisioning results in food sharing. A lot of it may be driven by scrounging that everyone wants to get a share, whether the, the uh, person who got the food wants to give it or not. And of course this happens, this tends to happen with larger food items like big animals. Uh, and certainly happens more with food sources that are not predictably acquired, you know, just reliably each day. I mean, everybody knows hunting is difficult, and the best hunter may still be a month before you get something again. And that, the, it's the scrounging that they're all waiting to get shares, uh, is what creates these fluid coalitions. That's how, that's why you would tolerate the sharing and give it up because it's not worth trying to defend it. It's not worth trying to defend it when you've got a fluid coalition of everybody else wanting to get some, wanting you to give them some. And that's especially true where there's large game. And that's the end. So hopefully it became somewhat clear, a little clearer why I would why I wanted to keep even non-foragers in there to some extent. But of course, it's a lot more true of foragers. Thank you very much.